Hello and welcome to From Balloons to Drones, the official podcast of BalloonsToDrones.com, where we explore the development of military air power from the earliest days of flight into today. I'm your host, Mike Hankins. And I am your host, Brian Lastly. Brian, I am fascinated lately by the flood of information we're getting about the release of classified intelligence that just seems to be flying out of nowhere. Um, I don't know if you've been glued to this story as much as I have, but it's it's kind of crazy. And you know, this this whole idea of secret information, classified intelligence, spies, it, you know, it's always a fascinating topic and it's one that's in the news a lot. What are you thinking about all this lately? Yeah, it's it's certainly foremost in all of our minds and I will be uh, one of the first to admit that my my phone, my text, my my uh, nothing has been quiet as all of this hits the news and my friends get in touch and it, it seems like everyone wants to talk about it. Uh, and even as we are recording this, uh, there's stuff going on, like, literally right now. Yeah, absolutely. Well, our guest today has delved pretty deep into that world of the intelligence community, specifically related to the Air Force, which is why we're on the show, this Air Power show that we have today. Uh, I'm talking about Philip Shackelford. He's the library director at South Arkansas Community College in El Dorado, Arkansas, and he's the author of Rise of the Mavericks, the U.S. Air Force Security Service and the Cold War from Navy Institute Press. Philip, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, well, we're excited to dive in. So let's let's dive right into this this idea. What drove you to write a book about the Air Force Security Service in the first place? <laughs> that is so. That's a really interesting chain of events that you know. Obviously, I could not have predicted at the time, um, but actually goes back to my grandfather. He had uh, served in the Air Force Security Service uh, during the early 1950s and was stationed in in Scotland. Um, you know, eavesdropping on the on the Soviet Union and, and so forth. And, um, you know, as my brother and I were growing up, um, he had, uh, you know, brief little anecdotes that he would share um, about his time in the Air Force. Um, and, and that kind of served as, as my entry point uh, to the topic. And obviously they were not anything that would have indicated just how secretive an organization it really was, um, at least, you know, not to a couple of kids who, you know, didn't have the context yet for for everything that he was talking about, but the the journey continued for me more or less in, in undergrad. You know, as you're as you're going through uh, the history program, you're you know doing historical methods. You're coming up on the senior seminar, and you're starting to cast about for um, a topic that you can that you can write about and do the senior paper. And uh, so, kind of toyed with a few different things, and ultimately landed on the security service as an idea uh, for that for that project. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll take a look and, and see what I can find. And uh, was immediately surprised and, and horrified, really, with the just how little information uh, was out there. And, of course, come to find out there's a really good reason for that. The security service was um, an intelligence agency, and obviously uh, material had only recently started to become declassified. I mentioned it to a professor I was working with at, at the time as a research assistant in a different department, and uh, he and I started poking around a little bit, doing a little bit of research. And uh, I never will forget, we're, we're in his office or in his lab one day, and he looks up you know, fairly bluntly and says, your grandfather was a spy. And, uh, you know, even if you started to get an inkling of, you know, where the research might eventually take you to have somebody put it to you in so many words, I mean, you, you don't forget something like that. And so, you know, long story short, I was hooked, um, did it for the for the senior seminar, stayed with it through grad school. And uh, ultimately, you know, it's it's a it's a fascinating, fascinating story. Now, this is a really interesting organization, but I'm going to go out on a limb here and think that a lot of people might not have heard of this agency, or they might mistake it for security forces or security police, which it is not. Exactly. Uh, so tell us, 
what is uh, the USAF Security Service? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think you're right. I think it does often get confused with some of those other um, units and, and organizations, and, and rightly so. I mean, I think that the, the words security and service appear quite often in a, in a variety of different contexts. And so teasing out uh, what exactly uh, it means can sometimes be a challenge. But yeah, the, the Air Force Security Service was a communications intelligence and communications secu- uh, security agency uh, created by the Air Force in 1948 um, to gather intelligence that would provide you know valuable information the Air Force needed to um, understand, to target, um, and to prevail over opposing forces in the Cold War, um, as well as to protect the security of internal Air Force communications. The mission did fluctuate uh, as the Cold War progressed to include electronic intelligence, electronic warfare, um, ultimately leading to the, the redesignation of the command as the Electronic Security Command in 1979 to reflect those, those new priorities. But uh, yeah, between 1948 and 1960, uh, the number of personnel assigned to the security service increased by almost 23,000. Um, uh, there was a force almost 150 times larger than the small group they started with in, in 1948. Um, and by the mid-1950s, the security service had really established itself as a uh, capable communications intelligence organization and had expanded by that point to become the largest of the service cryptologic agencies, um, outpacing the pre-existing and, of course, now competing uh, Army Security Agency and Naval Security um, Group. Um, And this was due, in part at least, to a keenly felt imperative uh, to become self-reliant in matters of intelligence, uh, which Air Force leaders viewed as uh, key to survival um, as an independent uh, service. And this did not always go down well with with other members of the intelligence community and, and, and the military. And, but yeah, at the end of the day, this this was an intelligence organization primarily and operated with those parameters. Yeah, you know, I think when so many people, and me included, when we think about the intelligence community, we think of this like well-oiled machine and it's like down to a science and they know what they're doing. And And really what comes out of your book more than anything, I think, is just how much consternation there is between different agencies. They're kind of competing. And you've got not only the national level agencies, but you've got the Army and the Navy and now the new Air Force coming out of World War II, all trying to kind of battle each other for who's doing what pieces of the intelligence pie. Um, and, And what you do really in this book is tie this new service, the Air Force Security Service, to the idea of Air Force independence and those kind of paths are very similar. Can you explain to us what are these fights about between the services and their intelligence organizations and how does Air Force independence really help this organization? Yeah, I think it's it's a good question. They're very clearly linked, I think, especially when it comes to the way that Air, Air Force leaders uh, themselves view this, this uh, process. You know, the Air Force is on its way up. Uh, at this moment in time, right? Building on what air leaders see as decisive demonstration of capability and value during World War II, making their case for service independence. And it would be fairly difficult and and counterintuitive, I think, for um, an independent air force to continue depending on another service for um, its intelligence information, especially when, you know, air force leaders have never really been satisfied with the intelligence support they received uh, from the army, never really believed that uh, army military intelligence had um, Air Force needs and, and priorities in mind. So the security service is a key piece of of overcoming that uh, dependence, but it's also this incredible little microcosm of the kind of fierce independence that characterizes the Air Force at large more broadly. Uh, we are the Air Force. We're something different than the Army. We have something different that we offer to to national defense. 
Um, and air leaders are very intent on uh, protecting the autonomy of this intelligence capability and making sure that it can serve um, Air Force needs uh, first, if not uh, exclusively. And Hap Arnold, I mean, he was one of the key figures really grossly dissatisfied with the intelligence support uh, the Air Force received from the Army during World War II, um, knew something something had to change. Um, just as an example, um, Arnold was never officially informed about um, Ultra, which, of course, is the famous uh, Allied codebreaking effort spearheaded by the British. Uh, but he found out on his own through his own independent uh, network. And so just to kind of build on that history as we move from the World War II period, the late 1940s, into the Cold War, this attitude really shapes how the Air Force uh, not only approaches its service independence, but also uh, approaches intelligence. Hoyt Vandenberg is another example who had dealings with communications intelligence during the war, and then in 1949 would play a key role in protecting the autonomy of the security service, which again had been had been established in, in the fall of 1948. This was necessary because of ongoing and really contentious debates concerning the proposed consolidation of military communications intelligence agencies into a single joint organization. And of course, the, the, the Navy and the Air Force um, had obviously opposed each other in the military unification debates, and the Navy, by and large, saw very little need for an independent Air Force. But when it came to communications intelligence, they found themselves in this unfamiliar position of allies in the, in the cryptologic consolidation debates, but for different reasons. The Navy opposed centralization because consolidating control and command into a single um, joint agency would interrupt the decentralized system of command uh, that the Navy preferred and really viewed as key to its its mode of operation. Um, but the Air Force, again, as we've seen, it, it really viewed this as, as a matter of survival. You know, given the importance of communications intelligence to strategic bombing, which, of course, was part and parcel of the Air Force's service identity at that point, remaining, again, re- you know, remaining dependent on other agencies for intelligence and or kind of subordinating Air Force uh, intelligence assets to joint control and direction uh, was just an untenable proposal. So ultimately, in this this really surprise reversal, of course, at least a, a surprise to the Navy, uh, the Air Force eventually agreed to support uh, general cryptologic consolidation, but only after a compromise proposal was submitted by the Army, uh, which allowed the individual service agencies a little bit more control and autonomy. Um, and then, of course, the Air Force ultimately designated all of its communications intelligence assets as mobile units, uh, taking advantage of a loophole in the, in the proposal that allowed um, additional autonomy um, and, and largely escaped the sacrifices to joint assignment uh, that, that occurred when the, the Armed Forces Security Agency was established. Um, so this, this, you know, this single-minded focus, this preparation and the bureaucratic navigation that kind of made these results possible is the overarching characteristic of the security services kind of rise to prominence um, in the post-war cryptologic community. You know, what, what the Army and the executive branch saw as territorialism and defiance, the Air Force understood as, you know, kind of pursuing institutional priorities and safeguarding um, independence. You know, you mentioned Hap Arnold and Hoyt Vandenberg, and those are clearly familiar names to anyone who studied uh, the history of the United States Air Force. But one of the key figures in the book is General Richard Clocko, someone that most people, even those of us who are really familiar with USAF history, probably either don't know or haven't heard of. So who is he? What's his story? Why is he important? Oh, yeah. Clocko is a fascinating figure and, and really does kind of feature heavily in the early history of the Security Service in particular. He's a graduate of West Point, class of 1937. 
Um, after flight training, he eventually becomes uh, a commander of a couple of pursuit squadrons called, of course, fighter squadrons today, uh, first in, in Puerto Rico um, and then in England, um, is deployed to North Africa as commander of a couple of squadrons down there and is eventually actually shot, shot down um, and taken prisoner. Um, spends almost two and a half years as a prisoner of war um, in uh, Poland, at, actually at uh, Stalag Luft Three, the, the famous uh, camp made, made famous by the movie The Great Escape, and is, is ultimately released in the spring of, of 1945, transferred back to the United States. But before very much of his allotted you know, recuperation time had, had elapsed, he receives these surprise orders to the Pentagon, and he's given a, um, a staff job, first just kind of in, in the staff and then with, with G2, the Military Intelligence Division. And then finally becomes involved in communications intelligence and learning about the different, the various facets of, of that work, all with the underlying intention that he will essentially put the Air Force in the business of uh, communications intelligence. Of course, keep in mind, the Air Force doesn't, exi- uh, doesn't exist yet um, at this point. And so um, these preparations are being made against the day that the, the Air Force uh, does, in fact, become an independent service. And so Clocko is ultimately the person responsible for doing the legwork, you know, organizing and, and creating the group that would eventually become um, the Air Force uh, Security Service. And almost as soon as that happens, uh, he leaves intelligence. He goes down to the, uh, the Air War College um, and spends a couple of years down there um, and uh, does a variety of other things. But he will return um, in the 1960s as uh, the commander uh, of, the, of the security service. I want to jump ahead a little bit and talk about some of the specific kind of events that are going on. So coming out of World War II, you know, the first kind of big conventional war that happens next, of course, is the Korean War. And in your coverage of the Korean War, you kind of note that things go very poorly for the Intel branch. And it's it's not a great moment. So what what's going on in Korea? What what goes wrong there? Yeah, it's 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 funny. Of course, the, the Air Force, um, as it's you know, following its establishment as, a, as an independent service in 47, the security service as well, everyone is geared towards the strategic threat, right? We're, we're focused on the Soviet Union. This is the, the really early days of the Cold War, and that's, that's, that's where everybody's mind uh, goes. And then we have Korea, and it really catches us all off guard. Um, and uh, the, the security service is, is definitely part of that. They are faced with the, the problem of not having assets in place. Uh, they don't have Korean linguists, so they have to do you know, some, some serious recruiting and training of, of uh, Korean linguists to, to get them ready and put them in place to, to hopefully be able to uh, navigate the challenge and, and, and meet the needs of information that, that, that is needed in the area. There's a lot of uh, miscommunication. Communication is a huge issue. Um, there, there are some assets in, in, in Japan and, and some that were in the ground um, that, that move into place. And uh, territorialism really, really becomes a huge, a huge challenge, both with some of the Air Force assets that were already in place, as well as Army um, assets that, that move in. And the lack of coordination is really what almost sinks the ship when it comes to intelligence in, in the Korean War. Um, the, the Armed Forces Security Agency, again, is merely created as an, as an umbrella organization for the service cryptologic agencies. And so, uh, especially with the way that the, the final charter uh, reads, has very little teeth. There's no budgetary control. There's no actual uh, operational control of the the service cryptologic agencies. And so um, essentially operates as its own separate um, intelligence agency in, in Korea. And so where everyone was was hoping that this would sort of uh, provide a, a level of uh, coordination, a level of organization and, and control uh, to military cryptology, it really doesn't. It just complicates the issue. And so that's what we see in Korea is it's really 
uh, service competition gets in the way, the lack of communication or, and, and or uh, lack of coordination uh, just really is, is a huge challenge. So, you know, this is the From Balloons to Drones podcast, and so we should talk about airplanes a little bit. So two-part question for you. Uh, how did Intel aid in F-86 operations uh, during the Korean War? Uh, but more importantly, after that, uh, talk about how specific aircraft play a role in collecting intelligence. What kinds of airplanes are being flown on these missions? How do they work? Yeah, good good question. So um, to, to Korea specifically, um, Korea is where a lot of the things get practiced and get and get introduced uh, for the first time or really kind of get fine-tuned um, and, and we'll kind of we'll see that come back in, in Southeast Asia later on but yeah the, the security service really um, gets into tactical intelligence support uh, in a big way and, and they're really able to do that with uh, vans portable equipment that they can get into these these areas that are, are really uh, more conducive to intercepting the signals that they need. Um, and then support the F-86, you know, the uh, fighter pilots uh, more successfully, kind of over and, ab- over and above what, what radar is able to provide. Uh, so the, the pilots themselves are not, are not privy to how the information is being uh, collected and, and provided. This is obviously a mystery to them, but the radar gets a whole lot better. Um, and so it's able to improve the kill ratio for, for allied uh, fighters um, against, uh, you know, the, the MiGs in Korea. And so when it comes to specific, you know, airborne collection platforms, uh, the specific aircraft that are involved in collection uh, signals intelligence uh, starts off with with the RB-29. And then we go to, you know, RC-130, KC-135, EC-47. These aircraft essentially, uh, as the Cold War progresses, uh, they have their, their normal kind of programs stripped out. And instead, they are loaded with intercept equipment and, and trained uh, operators uh, that are able to win conducting overflights or, or periphery flights along the periphery of these these areas are able to intercept signals that are that are coming out and and they're used in Korea um, they're used uh, of course the Cuban Missile Crisis and a very variety of other hot moments shall we say that that occurred during the 1950s um, and then of course uh, in in Southeast Asia as well so speaking of Southeast Asia uh, let's talk about after Korea we've of course moved into the Vietnam War where a lot of these techniques are going to be really important and you know, it's just fascinating for me thinking about talking about people in these aircraft or in vans on the ground, you know, listening for signals and they're translating and they're trying to communicate, but also keep their methods of intelligence gathering, you know, secrets so that it doesn't give away their methods and things like that. So Vietnam, you spend a lot of time on this in the book. It seems like a very different experience from either World War II or Korea. What's really different about what's going on in that war in regards to signals intelligence? Yeah, well, so so by the time of of uh, you know American involvement in, in Southeast Asia, which of course starts um, a lot earlier than than folks I think sometimes realize, by the time that rolls around, the security service has gotten a lot better at responding tactically, uh, responding operationally, and, and kind of thinking beyond the uh, strategic question. Like you know, we we realize that this you know, the Soviet Union is not the only thing that matters. We have to do um, other missions, um, and so by the time of, of Vietnam, we have the, the the security service has put together what they call emergency reaction units, and these are essentially what we've been what we've been talking about: mobile units that can get into rough terrain, uh, set up an operation very quickly, and and be able to to start supporting tactical operations. Um, and so in Vietnam, they're they're a lot better at it by that time. And and what really happens with the beginning is the security service first gets involved uh, in, in 
looking for information on the Chinese Air Force. The, the lay of the land literally um, is, is pro, uh, posing a, a serious challenge to security service um, planes and, and peripheral flights uh, kind of based in, in Japan and the Philippines. And so they're looking for other locations, whether that be Vietnam, Thailand, uh, other places in Southeast Asia, that would hopefully provide a little bit more of a window um, into what's going on in, in Western China. And so that's how it initially starts. Um, and then as indications continue to, to build up that something may happen um, in Vietnam, the, the security service moves in one of these uh, emergency reaction units into place. And essentially, they are waiting for an air war to break out um, because they know that uh, they don't want to have to respond um, after the fact. They want to be ready. They want to be uh, in place so that when that happens, they're able to provide the kind of support that the fighters are, are going to need. And so that's that's ultimately what what does happen. Um, they are again able to to provide the, the very crucial, very very supportive level of of assistance uh, to to fighters who are, are engaged um, in in those in those conflicts. But also, I think another lesson that um, they are continuing to learn and maybe have learned a little bit better by the time of Vietnam um, is how to balance priorities, right? Because you've you've got the operational missions and the missions that are. Um, geared towards very specific needs uh, in very specific conflicts. But you've also got the national level priorities that are by this point being uh, directed by the National Security Agency. And so having to balance those two to demands on, on the mission and demands on, on, on resources and time is something that the command um, has has learned to to balance a little bit better by the time of Vietnam. And, and we start to see a transition in the attitude of the security service kind of from away from this initial fiercely independent kind of maverick attitude in, in the beginning of the command in late 1940s, early 1950s, to a more joint-minded approach by the time we get to Vietnam. And so it's interesting to kind of witness that trajectory. And then also at the same time, by the time of Vietnam and, and later on, see uh, the decline of uh, the importance of strategic bombing when it comes to American foreign policy um, and kind of look at those two uh, trends um, in conjunction with one another. Yeah, so speaking of support to the air campaigns that go on in Vietnam, you especially highlight their work during Operation Bola, which is something Mike and I talk about all the time, even outside of <laughs> official Balloons to Drones podcast. So tell us a little bit about uh, the USA of Security Service role in Bolo. Sure thing, and I'm sure you guys have much more of a much more of a handle on Operation Bolo than I will. But I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about what the Security Service role was in in that in that operation. Of course, your your listeners will be familiar with with the mission itself. You know, Robin Olds um, leading uh, leading the Phantoms up to to take part in this operation. Um, where the Security Service really comes in is in the communication network that will support uh, the operation, and part of the deception um, that goes into uh, the operation as well. The the Phantoms are going to be um, essentially disguised um, as F-105 uh, fighter bombers, and the security service is going to fly a Silver Dawn airborne collection platform in support of the mission to build a better picture of uh, enemy aircraft as they start to approach the the, uh, the American fighters. And so the security service builds in uh, the, how they're going to do this. They're going to transmit on discrete frequencies, um, and they're going to mask uh, their signals under a um, another call sign so that if, you know, obviously the, the Vietnamese, the North Vietnamese are going to be intercepting or, or trying to intercept communications as well, um, that it will not appear as if an operation is, is of this kind is, is taking place. Um, and they're going to transmit MIG alerts uh, using specific code words that the, the fighter pilots are going to have already in, in the operational plan. Um, what the, the challenge 
comes down to is that uh, many of the uh, the F4 Phantoms um, had faulty receivers. And so even though the operation was a success, an ultimate, ultimate success, it could have been much more so had more of the American fighters been receiving uh, the signals that the security service, the, the alerts that the security service personnel were, were sending. Uh, because just like in Korea, they're, they're providing a, a better picture over and above uh, what radar um, is able to provide and, and kind of uh, using those signals to to uh, paint a better picture of where the MiGs are coming from, where they're going to be, uh, what bases they came from, um, and uh, give all that information to the fighters online. Yeah, I was so thrilled when I came across I know it's not like a major part of the book, but you know, us aviation geeks, we've read so much stuff about Bolo, uh, which is a great story, but there's just so much out there about it. And here it, it popped up something. I was like, I've never heard this part of the story. And that was, it was really good to read. Uh, so awesome. I appreciate that. Absolutely. But speaking of, you know, guys like Robin Olds, uh, you've characterized the security service folks as Mavericks to get back to your title. And I don't know if that's a Top Gun reference, but I'll assume it is. Uh, but what is it about these folks that you know, you've characterized as this maverick attitude as kind of a microcosm of of this kind of Air Force independent streak. How, how is that uh, playing into this? Yeah, it's it it, it does it is tied to to independence for sure. Um, but I think it it really gets to how the other intelligence uh, agencies, how other elements um, in in the intelligence community and the government at the time are really starting to to view uh, the security service and the Air Force and kind of how these ideas are linked, right? Uh, intelligence and um, independence. Um, in 1945, General George MacDonald, who at the time is serving as director of intelligence for the strategic air forces in Europe, um, he writes a memo where, as this great quote, he says, it seems to me uh, that when a service gives away dominion over its intelligence, it has in fact given up its independence. And so it's a very, very clear illustration of how these ideas are, are linked together and, you know, ties well with with the the past experience and kind of the history of you know, Army Air Forces, the Army Air Corps before that, kind of well into the, the pre-war period, uh, extremely interested in in pursuing service autonomy. I mean, really only World War II itself kind of delays this, delays this, this objective. Um, and then, of course, add to the fact, like as, as we discussed, that, that air leaders have never really been satisfied with the intelligence support they received from the Army. These ideas are linked and these air leaders are, are know, knew what they were doing from, from the word go. And they immediately set about the task of setting up this independent intelligence capability that could support Air Force um, needs um, and Air Force priorities. And at the same time, kind of help the Air Force overcome its dependence on the Army in, in that regard. And so it, it really is more about describing describing the attitude describing the the uh, mo uh, that these these air leaders kind of approach these tasks um and and how they are uh, kind of perceived uh, within the larger intelligence community in the larger picture so gathering intelligence is great talking about fighters is great but let's get to the the really interesting stuff and that is obviously research methodology. It wouldn't be a Bloons to Drones podcast if we did not talk research methodology. So how do you go about researching this type of history? Did you run into classification issues? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's 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 a mix, you know, because a lot of the things that, you know, even if they have been declassified, they're scattered all around the country in, in various different places. You're not going to run up on a significant body of, of documents that are all in the same place and, and really just kind of packaged neatly for you. Uh, right. So that's, that's not going to happen. I think the, the, the one thing I will say about that is that, and, and many, many of your listeners are probably already familiar with this, is the Digital National Security Archive. 
um, put out by the, the National Security Archive there at uh, George Washington University. Uh, fantastic resource. And I can you know, successfully say that the, the book would not have happened without, without that resource because they've, they've done a lot of great work and, and are continuing to do a lot of great work with uh, declassification and kind of making those um, records available, not only just in you know, sheer, you know, here they are, but, but kind of categorizing them into uh, topical um, arrangements and subject guides so that it makes it a whole lot easier to find. Um, but yeah, classification is always, always a challenge. There is a, uh, kind of a, uh, I don't know, uh, holy grail, uh, moment that if, if I could ever get, get in touch, there's a, uh, I think it was a 1986, uh, bibliography of documents relating to you know, basically official history, uh, command histories of, uh, air force organizations. And there's an entire section, uh, that has to do with, um, intelligence and the, and security service, uh, electronic security command, uh, particularly. And you can see the titles, you can see the authors, you can see the dates of publication, but they are all top secret. And nobody seems to know where they are um, because I've asked at Maxwell, I've asked you know, the folks at San Antonio. Um, nobody seems to know exactly where those are, those are, those are held. So um, that will be a red letter day. If, if those are ever made available, um, that maybe that's another book or two uh, just to see what, what goes through those. But uh, but yeah, it, it is a challenge. I think what, what you have to do um, is just to take advantage of the things that you can find. And then obviously I think with, with this book in particular, the, the sources that are available support more of an organizational history as opposed to an operational history. So you have to just kind of understand the limitations of the information that's out there and, and tell the story that the sources will support. Well, for those who want to check out that story in as much detail as is currently publicly releasable, uh, check out Rise of the Mavericks, the U.S. Air Force Security Service and the Cold War. Uh, that's from Philip Shackelford at Navy Institute Press. Uh, so, Philip, where else can we find more of your work? Um, do have a website, philipcshackelford.com. Um, and then I'll just tell folks uh, as well, the Modern Scholar podcast uh, is a, hopefully a fun resource for everybody. Uh, we talk to uh, scholars, historians, librarians, community leaders, um, all with the idea of kind of providing a glimpse behind the veil, so to speak, uh, kind of demystify these professions and kind of some of the challenges, but also the great work that's being done and, and provide a platform to talk about those things. So thank you. It's a great show. Thanks for being here. Uh, Brian, where else are you at these days? Uh, so two locations. You can find me at www.brianlastly.com and you can also find me on Twitter at Brian Lastly. Mike, what about yourself? I'm at mwhankins.com and of course all of us are online at balloonstodrones.com. Our music was created by Jason Davis at Digital Fish Media, which you can find on Facebook at digitalfishmedia.org. Uh, please send us an email or submit an article for publication at balloonsadrones.com slash contact. Thank you all, and we will see you next time.